I'm glad to see y'all. We just came back from Ignite. You can be opening your Bibles to Acts. Uh, we're in, in chapter 11, called a Christian is what I'm calling this today. Um, we just came back from Ignite. Uh, several of our men uh, went. Um, what a great time in the Lord and great time with men. I got to see my son and his wife spend some time with them as well there. And so that was a, that was a joy for me personally. But um, great speakers, great fellowship, great time in the Lord. And, and some of our guys are very fired up. I don't know about you, I come, I come in church expecting a battle against our enemy Satan. We are at war. That's what W-A-R, war, stands for. We are ready, okay? And we're ready to do war against our enemy. And so I hope you came in kind of with that mindset. Our, our pastor council met this morning at 6.30 to pray. So they got me fired up. I'm just here to tell you, they, uh, the Lord just filled our tank and, and uh, I'm good to go. And so we're in, we're in Acts 11, 19 through 30. It's a, it's a very interesting passage. Um, and if you want to, go ahead and stand up. And I will read that, uh, beginning verse 19 to the end of that chapter. Uh, this is picking up from Acts chapter 8, which I'll point out later on too. But here's what it says. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christian. Now, pay attention to that. And then the last part says, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit... There would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, you have wonderful things here that you want us to see. But Lord, we are unable to see them without the filling and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you that uh, the believers in this room today... The Holy Spirit has already baptized them. They reside in the Spirit. But we pray for your filling. We pray for you to do that supernatural work, uh, Father, uh, through the Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord Jesus, that the Holy Spirit would open our understanding that we could behold the wonderful things out of your word. But Lord, we pray also for those who are outside the faith that your Holy Spirit, uh, who's the only one that can do this, will convict them, convince them and, and, uh, of righteousness, of sin, and Lord, uh, and, and of judgment to come. Lord, that, that there's a day coming when we all stand before you. But Lord, each one of us is going to stand before you in our lifetime. When we leave this place, in the next moment, we'll be before you to give an account for what we have done. And we pray that in that day, we will rejoice. And in that day, we'll be able to bring good gifts to you that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Y'all can be seated. Uh, I, I don't know like how you grew up. Uh, I, I grew up. Uh, in, in, in church, uh, my whole life, I've told you that many, many times. 
And uh, I, all my pastors that I had that church were, were great men. Um, the pastor, when I was a little kid and up till I was about 13, I'm strong enough to do this. I just don't want to spill it when I do it. There we go. Um, that pastor, he was a good and godly man. Um, he wasn't very exciting uh, because uh, he was a bit older, but God used him a great way. He, he, was, he was a great man of God, and I learned a lot from him. I was called to preach under his ministry, got saved under his ministry, and I thank God for all that. And then when I was about 13, we got a Texas evangelist for a pastor. Now, I don't know if you ever met a Texas evangelist, but that'll change your life right there. I'm just telling you. Um, he was good to go, and uh, uh, I, I can't even begin to tell you some of the stuff because uh, it's, so, it's funny to me, but... Uh, you would just look at me weird if I, if I told you. But, but through under his ministry, there was something I realized. And, and sometimes we call this the, the lordship of Christ or, or whatever. But I understood that being saved wasn't a fire insurance. Being saved wasn't just something that you did to make sure you went to heaven when you die. If that's, if that's your reasoning, I, I just encourage you to go deeper, to think deeper, to pray deeper. And, and because we come to Christ... Because he is God, period. And that without him, yes, we're lost. But without him, we have no understanding, no hope of anything that God has for us. And we desperately need him even to live this life. And we come to him because he's the guy to come to. There's no other, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's Acts 4.12, which we've preached on, uh, obviously, sometime uh, before. So... At that time in my life, I realized that God didn't want anything. He wanted everything. And I began to read my Bible every day. I began to pray every day. I began to witness to other people. I began, I always gave. My parents made sure we, we always tithed our whole life. And, but, but all those things took on new meaning for me. And, and, and I began to do them with more intentionality and more diligence and, and, and I began to grow in my faith. Yeah, you don't grow in your faith if you don't do those things, by the way. People say, well, I wish I was a better Christian. Well, get in the Word, pray, act like it, start living it. Um, and in this passage, we see kind of what happened there is what happened to this group of people. Um, and and there, there's some really interesting things. I don't know if, if you've ever felt that way, like, well, I go to church, but, you know, I got saved, I walked in aisle, I got baptized, but it doesn't mean that much to you. Listen, it, I, I appreciate singing Good, Good Father. It's a great song, because uh, that's who he is. He is a good father, and I am loved. Y you know, we bring nothing to God, right? We bring nothing to Christ. We, we, sometimes we think, you know, we, we think this way about others even if you don't think about yourself. You know, if that celebrity would get saved, boy, what a work God could use them to do. Well, guess what? God can use you to do a great work. He doesn't need a celebrity. We, we were at this weekend, and, and I didn't think I would work this in, but obviously I'm going to. Um, didn't mean to. But, but we're listening uh, to, to this famous quarterback. I won't tell you who he is. That, that'll help. And, but at 13, he became the the first string varsity quarterback in his high school. And he said he wanted to be Michael Vick. That was his hero back then. Don't, don't get mad at me. Uh, I didn't say it. He said it. And so he wanted to wear number seven. So he told the coach, I want to wear number seven. But the other quarterback got to wear number seven. It had been there longer. And he said, nope, sorry, here's number four for you. And, 
he said, if I can't have number seven, I don't want to play. Coach said, well, you're not going to get number seven. You are going to play. And why don't you wear number four so kids will want to be you and get number four? That was a good illustration, wasn't it? You know, and so we, we're always wanting somebody else to be that. God wants you to be that person. God wants you to be the person somebody looks up to and says, how do they handle that adversity in their life? How do they live that life of, of, of peace in the midst of conflict, in the midst of trouble? In the, and and how, how come, you know, that they, they seem to have an a, a, a attitude of, of joy when there's nothing to be happy about? You know, happiness and joy are two different things, right? Happiness depends on your circumstances. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. If you don't have joy, it means you don't have the fruit of the Spirit in your life. We ought to have joy even when things are going horrible because guess what? Worst thing you can do to me is kill me. And that's also the best thing you can do because then I'm out of my suffering and I'm with God. So, you know, feel free. It's, it's, it, it, it's just it's an awesome place to live. So, so we, we need that to, to understand that we can be Christians, and to be called a Christian, you first have to be a disciple. Now, I'll explain that when I get to it in, in a little bit. Let me just kind of set up the passage I've already read to you. Uh, these, these people were living Christ wherever they went. This is picking up, If it, you don't have to turn there, but back in um, Acts chapter 8, uh, the, uh, Stephen has already been killed, and, and it says Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men, women, and committed them to prison. And then it sort of takes a princess and talks about some things that happened. And here in chapter 11 and verse 19, it picks that up and says, Now remember we said people were scattered. And it begins to tell a story of some of those scattered people. And one group of them went to Antioch. Uh, just another interesting point about how accurate the Bible is. It says when they sent the people from Jerusalem, it says they went down to Antioch. But Antioch's north of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem's higher by elevation than Antioch. So they literally went down <laughs> To Antioch, just interesting point. The Bible's extremely accurate. Now, those who were scattered because of this persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And what happens? They begin speaking the word to no one except Jews. They got to Antioch. They did not hear what had happened in Joppa with Peter. And we we're, we come up to that timeline, but this refers back to like the scattering, like I said. And in verse twenty. But there were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also. In other words, there were some, some Greek Jewish believers who saw other Greeks and began to talk to them. And these Greeks, who were not Jews, get saved. Now, Hellenist is another word for Jew. I mean, for Greek, sorry. For, for a Greek person. And so the hand of the Lord was with them, and many of them turned to the Lord. So, you got to get yourself what, what, what's happening here. Everywhere they went, they were preaching the gospel. And people are getting saved in verses 20 and 21. Uh, but the people in Antioch believed the message. They became followers of Christ. But they didn't know that this had already been opened up to the Gentiles. That salvation had, had, had happened. So, the people of... Remember where Barnabas came from? He came from this area. And so what does the church do in Jerusalem? When the elders in Jerusalem hear about it, 
they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, if you've been paying attention the whole time, you get the importance of that. Who spoke at Pentecost? Peter. He opened the gate of the Holy Spirit. He opened the door for the Holy Spirit to come on the Jews, right? In Acts 8, who went to look at the Samaritans and talk to them who were believing? Peter, right? And he opened the door for the half-Jewish people, the Samaritans. And then in Acts 10, which we were in just a couple weeks ago, this Gentile believer, this Gentile person who wants to know God, Cornelius, who did the church send? Peter, because he had to unlock the door of the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. But now Jerusalem knows the door's been opened to everybody. And they hear in Antioch, these Greeks are getting saved. And they don't send Peter. Because the door's already open. How many times in our life do we wish somebody that we think knows more, can do better, we want them to come? That happens a lot, right? I, I love the story of Elijah and Elisha. I think you guys were studying that in in. Uh, in, in a Bible study here recently, but but I love the story because Elijah, Elisha's following him along, and they come to this brook, Kedron, and and instead and 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 uh, Elijah takes off his cloak and he hits the water, and he cries out to God, and the water stops, and he walks across on dry land. Elisha goes with him, and they get the other side, and that's when Elijah goes to heaven, and the Holy Spirit comes to Elisha. and Elisha picks up the mantle of Elijah because he dropped it behind him as a symbol that. Uh, you get what I had. And, and the story says Elisha comes back to that brook and he gets to it. And I love to stop there and say this. He didn't say, oh man, I wish Elijah were here. He doesn't call the Army Corps engineers to come build him a bridge. He doesn't sit on the bank going, <laughs> can't get across, nobody's here to help me. The Bible says he cried out to God and said, where now is the Lord God of Elijah? He cries out to God, and God answers his prayer just like he did Elijah's prayer, and the water stops, and he walks across on dry ground. So many times we're like, we, oh, that guy was such a great influence in my life. That guy, he knows the Lord, and oh, I wish. Guess what? God wants to work in you. And the church recognizes, hey, we don't need Peter to go every time now. And it's Greeks getting saved. And Barnabas, didn't you come from Cyprus? Yeah. Well, these guys from Cyprus are getting saved. You need to go up there and help that church. So Barnabas goes. Now, where did Barnabas start in this journey? Well, all, by, all the way back in Acts 6, he was a deacon. Now he's going to help plant churches. Somebody say amen. Come on, y'all. Woo, am I by myself here? This is awesome. Barnabas goes, and it says when he gets there, all these people turn to the Lord. The report comes. They send Barnabas. He comes and he sees the grace of God. He was glad and exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfastness of purpose. Doesn't say that he prayed and the Holy Spirit fell. Because the Holy Spirit's already come to them. They've been saved. Nobody's gotten excited. Doesn't say they spoke in tongues or anything like that. Barnabas just shows up. And, and uh, everything is, sorry, working out. Well, this doesn't want to open for me. So, I've got notes, some notes written in here to make sure I, 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 I get all that. And, and so, this authority now... Sends Barnabas, and he, notice his qualifications. These are the same things they said about him when they made him a deacon. It says in verse 24, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. He's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of faith. 
Okay? So he's recognized as a man who really follows the Lord and, uh, and, and a man who is full of, of God's Holy Spirit. And so many people are added to the Lord. But I want you to catch verse 25. Because what's about to happen is Barnabas is about to recover an outcast. In verse 25, and this is Barnabas' spirit, right? He's an encourager. Barnabas goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now, I, I, I opened up a Bible map on, on my computer, and I found out that, that Antioch is up here, way up high on the coast, and you go to the top and turn left at the Med, and over there is Tarsus, where Saul is from. And I went ahead and made a copy of it and kind of put a ruler to it, and the best I can figure is about 90 to 100-mile trip. So Barnabas says, y'all hang on for a minute. He walks, or goes, however he got there, he goes around to Tarsus. And, and this word here that says he goes to Tarsus to look for Saul, that sounds a little bit funny to us. It's like he doesn't know where he is, but he knows he's in Tarsus. This is literally a word that means he had to hunt for him and it took some difficulty. It implies it was hard to find him. You know how long it's been since they've seen Saul? About 10 years. About 10 years has happened between Saul getting saved, and if you remember, he went away three years into the desert. It's about 10 years from his salvation. Three years in the desert, he comes back, he starts preaching, and he is hammering the Jewish people about who Jesus is. And he hammers them so hard, they want to kill him too. And they said, dude, you need to get out of town. You need to go home for a while. And he goes to Tarsus, and he's gone for a long time. Barnabas gets to Antioch. And he sees all these believers, and he says, I can't handle this by myself. You know what? I bet Saul would be a good help to me. He goes, hang on. He goes and gets Saul and says, I need your help. Come back. What is Barnabas doing? Well, number one, he had recognized that Saul was gifted in understanding the gospel from the Old Testament. Probably Barnabas realized he was better at that than he was, that Saul was better at that than he was. So he wanted that kind of help. But there's something else Barnabas is going to do, and it's not written out plainly, but you're going to catch it later on. He's going to teach Saul how to teach others about the faith. He goes and gets Saul, and notice what it says. He brought him back to Antioch, and for a whole year, notice that, they spent a year, they met with the church, and taught a great many people. I don't want you to ever forget, what are the two main purposes of the church. There's only two main purposes. We break it down to five or six things, but there's only two main purposes of the church. And one is to do what for the lost? To, to bring the lost to faith in Christ, right? Now, we can't do that. There's no way I can bring somebody to faith. There's no way I can save them or do anything else. But what I can do is tell them about Christ, and Christ can save them, right? This is the quiet crowd. 11 o'clock, I don't have to ask for amens, all right? So, the second great thing we do is when someone becomes a Christian, what do we do? Teach them how to be a Christian, right? And, and I said last week, and I've said it many times, I'm going to keep saying it. We teach people how to be good church members. We don't teach them how to be good Christians. I want you to catch this before we read the next phrase. Bar and notice it's Barnabas and Saul at this point. Barnabas is the lead right now. Barnabas and Saul spent a year teaching them what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And then we have a very famous phrase that you've probably heard a lot. People say it in the church a lot. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. 
This is the first time that, that, has been, that title has been given to followers of Christ. It comes from two different words. One, uh, one um, uh, Greek word and one Latin word. The Greek word is the word for Christ, Christos. And you would think that the Bible is full of references to Christians. It happens three times. It happens in this passage... It also happens in Acts 26, 28, and in 1 Peter 4, 16, and it's never used by a Christian in the Bible. It's always somebody outside the church says, those guys are Christians. Why? Because Christos, Christ, and then it's a Latin ending, I-A-N-U-S, that means associated with him. Those guys look like Jesus, is what they're saying. They said, those are like Christ, like Christ, they're Christians. That's the first time it's called. But notice how the Bible puts it. The disciples are first called Christians in Antioch. And I want you to catch that order. One day I read that and it went, oh. See, you can't pray a prayer and claim to be a Christian. You can pray a prayer and claim to be a follower of Christ. But until you're discipled in Christ, you can't say you're like Christ. You say, that's radical. I know, isn't it? I'm not fussing. I'm telling you, that's the standard. Jesus didn't say, if you don't do what I say, you're a bad disciple. He said, you cannot be my disciple if you don't pick up your cross. If you don't die to yourself and live only for me, you can't even be a disciple. And then once you're a disciple of Christ and you live like Christ, now they can call you a Christian. Notice what just came before it. Barnabas, Saul, Barnabas and Saul spent a year teaching them, and now they call them Christians. By the way, here's when it became in common use. The first Christian believer to call, and back then in the New Testament, they called themselves believers. They called themselves followers of Christ. They called themselves brothers. Um, and, and, and there's a subtle reference all through the New Testament, and the followers of this way, the way of Jesus... But the first guy to, to use the word Christian exclusively for followers of Christ is a guy named Ignatius, which doesn't mean anything to you. A contemporary of him is a guy named Polycarp. But here's what's interesting about those two guys. They were disciples or dis, di, discipled by John the Apostle. And Ignatius began writing as he grew in the faith and he became a pastor. And he only used the word Christian when referring to believers. And guess what his job was? He was the bishop of the church in Antioch. And he was martyred in 108 A.D. Okay, I, now that's just historic detail. Probably doesn't excite you like it excites me. I, I, you know, I slobber over that stuff. It's like, oh, this is so cool. But here's what I want you to catch. You can't be called a Christian until you act like Jesus. We ask people, are you a Christian? You shouldn't have to ask. Outsiders recognize and go, oh, those guys are Christians. Those people look like Jesus. Those people act like Jesus. They talk like Jesus. They walk like Jesus. They, they, they do everything like Jesus did it. They are associated with Christ. So therefore, they are Christians. And that first happens in Antioch after Barnabas and Saul spend a year teaching them. And they, people outside that community start going, those guys are Christians. Now, this is important for, for more than one reason. 
First of all, it's a term Gentiles would use to show the success of the Gentile mission in Antioch. How did the church know? How did the Jewish believers know those guys are true believers because they started looking like Jesus? That's how they recognized, hey, that's an act of God. But secondly, it begins to separate the church from Judaism. This is that turning point of the church. Not Well, Acts 10, of course, is the turning point where Gentiles get saved. But this is the physical turning point where all of a sudden this church is full of not only Jewish believers, but Greek believers, of non-Jewish believers. And there's Greek Jews, there's Jerusalem Hebrew Jews, and there's just Greek regular guys that all now call themselves or are called Christians by the outside world that's looking in on it. Amen? Wouldn't you want everybody in Stanton to go, the people that go to that church are Christians. Do you see the difference in the word? Oh, you Christians. How about, wow, you really look like Jesus. That would be amazing if someone else... You know, we're, we're afraid of being made fun of and called names. Man, that is an honor when somebody says, you look a lot like Jesus. Well, we see something else that happens here. The church begins taking care of each other as well. Well, they've already been doing that, but, but they, they do that. And, and in verse 27 and 28, we see, In those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold in the, uh, by the Spirit there would be a great famine all over the world, and this took place days of Christ. I, I just want to explain the word prophet to you uh, before we go too far here, because that word is misunderstood. Many times, sorry, very dry mouth this morning. Many times we hear the word prophet, we think of somebody can tell the future. Of course, that happens. That is, that is a legitimate use of that word. But in the New Testament, that that that. How that works changes a little bit. In the Old Testament, before we have the full canon of Scripture, and even in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, is speaking directly into the minds of men. And so we see that God speaking to Saul on the road to Tarsus and speaking to him as he, as he goes through life. But what he's doing is he's hearing from God and he's writing down what God's telling him. That's how the Old Testament books got written. That's how New Testament books got written. You with me? You follow me? Okay, that goes on until 100 A.D. Until, until John uh, pins out the book of Revelation. And then that direct revelation from God to the minds of men ends. But up to now, for about 11, 12, 1300 years, God has been speaking, or even longer, God has been speaking to men who are writing down what God's telling them. And then that ends. And so a prophet in that Old Testament sense, God speaks directly to them, and then they use this. To spit it out here to the world. This is what they were telling the world is what they recorded in here. For a New Testament prophet, it works like this. God the Holy Spirit translates the word into the life of the, the prophet. And the prophet applies the truth of God's word to the needs of the church. That's the difference. Now the difference between a pastor and a prophet. A prophet doesn't do it gently. <laughs> a prophet will just call sin, sin and and, and God uses that to, to bring in that exhortation that like, dude, this is wrong and this is God's answer to that. A pastor, uh, 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 that gift of pastoring is to shepherd the people, to lead them in, in a more gentle way to understand the truth of God's word. And, and both things are needed. You need, you know, I don't know about you, but every once in a while I need a kick in the seat of my pants. 
I don't know if you're like me or not, but that's, that's the best way to get through to me. You know, my brain works better when you kick me in the backside. It's sort of like a direct shot up there to my head. And, uh, and you know, when, you do, when you're gentle, I just don't get it because I don't get hints. I'm very dull to hints. So, so being a prophet can mean foretelling, but it also means telling forth. To take the truth of God's word and tell it forth, tell other people about it. So it's foretelling, but it's also telling forth. And in this instant, obviously God has given revelation to this guy named Agabus that there's coming a famine. And by the way, historically, we can date this. We know there was famines in those regions. Uh, we know all about it from other writings, uh, what was going on. So we can, con- can confirm this. But... Uh, uh, it, it was in this rule of Claudius who was mentioned in these, in these verses. It says this took place during the rule of Claudius, and that's uh, 41 to 54 A.D., just in case you're keeping record. This is probably around 47 to 49 A.D. When, when this famine happened they're talking about. So what did they do? They said, well, if that's going to happen, and they believed what God told them through Agabus, we need to start saving up to help the people down in Judea is going to have a famine. Because they weren't, but they knew the people in Judea were. And so the church in Antioch starts taking up a collection now to help them then. You notice that? They're helping each other. Y'all know we're not in this alone, right? Y'all know God blesses people who don't believe like you do? Don't do things the way we do them? Listen, a goal of this church is to get the gospel into every house in Augusta County this year. Now, guess what? We can't do that by ourselves. So this past Wednesday, and Brother Dave Anthony is helping spearhead that for us. But this past Wednesday, we met with a group of pastors. And we're saying to those pastors, you know the churches in your area. You need to recruit people that preach God, preach the word. And we don't care if they got the name Baptist on them. Because all we're doing is getting a gospel presentation into their home through a movie. comes in three languages, the Jesus movie. We're giving them a copy of that. Say, man, what does all this cost? The group that, likes to, that wants us to do this gave us 50,000 copies of that movie. And we're going to put one. There's, there's almost 50,000 homes in Augusta County. We wanna, we're gonna, and, and by the end of the year, we want, through the churches, to put the gospel presentation in every home. We'll put information about our church and the ones we hand out. They'll put information about their church. In some places where we're kind of close together, we may put information about both churches or a list of all the churches that are cooperating, saying, hey, whichever one's closest to you, check them out. Making sure, of course, that it's a gospel preaching church. But we can't afford to not give the gospel to everybody. Do you, let, me, let me just ask you, do you believe... That God wants every person in Augusta County to hear about Jesus? Do you think it's God's will that this church take that as their responsibility? Okay, remember that. (laughs) Because if we don't do it, it won't get done. That's why we need you. We need you to be working out. We need you to be living like a disciple so people call you a Christian. Right? Let me give you another start. You might want to write this down. I should have asked to put a slide up for this, and I didn't. But write down the words, bless every home. Then go to Google when you get home and look up blesseveryhome.com. It will allow you to pray for up to 40 of your neighbors. You put in your address, they will give you from public information records, nothing private. 
They will give you the location and the name of the people supposedly. They still got me listed living in, in Pastor uh, Andy's house. So it, it's, it might not be 100% accurate. Uh, hopefully that will change soon. But, but, uh, but anyhow, uh, you can start praying for your neighbors. And, and you can go and look at that. But it's called Bless Every Home. And then the, to follow that. And what if there's around 400 people, give or take, every week in this auditorium. What if 400 of us... Prayed for 40 houses in Augusta County. And by the way, they won't assign the same house to two people. Computer keeps track of that. It'll give you a different 40 uh, than, than, your, than your spouse, in fact, in the same house. What would happen if 40 people, 400 people prayed for 40, people, 40 houses? How many is that? Just because I can't do the math. That's 16,000 houses. Is that right? Four times four is 16, right? Three zeros, 16,000. Can you imagine praying for 25% just from this church, 25% of the population of Augusta County? And if you start praying for people, guess what? You'll start wanting them to know Jesus. And so we're going to follow that up by taking the gospel to them, but we need to be praying for them in the meantime, right? So I want everybody in this church to go on that website and start doing that. Many of us are already doing it. And, and you need to do that as well. I don't mean this to be an advertisement <laughs> sermon, but these are some practical applications that, that you can do. But here's what I want you to catch, too. So they took up this offering, and after Barnabas and Saul had been there a year, verse 30 comes along. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Wait a minute. The church in a year had gotten to the point they don't need Barnabas and Saul anymore. Why don't you guys take this offering on down? And we'll, we got it here in Antioch now. I don't know if Ignatius is there yet or not. Ignatius was born about three or four years after Jesus died. <clears throat> and he eventually becomes the bishop of that church. Somebody in that church is probably Ignatius' parents at this point. Isn't that cool? How God just works all that stuff out. I, I love finding out those details and... Seeing in scripture this little hint. But guess what? A team is formed. Now it's Barnabas and Saul. Now when we get to chapter 13, we find out the church in Jerusalem says, we need to send people out to plant churches. Hey, who, who, who should we send? And the Holy Spirit said, Barnabas and Saul. In the meantime, God had told Barnabas and Saul, church is going to send you out to plant churches. And so they get to the first place, and Barnabas kind of, because he's gentle, they get attacked sort of by an enemy of the, uh, a friend of the devil, an enemy of the church. And Saul steps up and he takes over with that prophetic voice and boom. But here's what I, I said. Barnabas is doing something in Saul's life at the same time. Remember 10 years before, Saul gets up and he's ripping people prophetically about who Jesus is. To the point they just want to kill him. They, nobody even can hear what he's saying because of how harsh he is. And the most gentle believer in the church goes and rescues him from Tarsus and says, hey, come help me because I need your fire and you need my ability to teach people and to love on people and to educate people. And Barnabas teaches Saul in that year as much as Saul taught anybody the truths of the word of God from the Old Testament. Do you catch that? It's not stated in the scripture but all of a sudden, there's this team, Barnabas and Saul. In fact, 
Saul didn't learn at all because on that very first missionary journey, they had a little disagreement. The second one, Paul said, he ain't going with us. Barnabas said, yeah, he is. He said, well, then you go your own way with him, and I'm going to go my way. And they split up, but they get back together later. Okay, but the, the, I love the Bible because it's very truthful about the people of God in the Bible. It doesn't make them all heroes. Make lets us know their, their problems, right? And so they still had some issues later, but God is working in Saul's life, and Barnabas is teaching Saul. This is how you sit down with people. This is how you teach them line upon line, precept upon precept. And so Saul is learning how to communicate the gospel in a way people can get it, but he never loses that urgency, that fire, that, that passion that he had. And Barnabas had the same passion. It just comes out in a different way, and you need both things, right? How many of you all have ever been fishing? All right, most of you have been fishing. I, I learned to fish with a cane pole, literal cane pole, and a string and a bobber. And that bobber may be an empty spool from my mom's sewing drawer, right? Anybody been that bad off? Yeah, okay, amen. Thank you. Somebody raise their hand. Uh, thank you for that. And so, man, I catch and brim. Well, that's kind of easy fishing. But some people take it a step further. And, it, and I don't know why, but they have to buy a $120,000 boat to go 70 miles an hour to catch fish. I, I don't get it. I didn't know bass swam that fast. But anyway, so they go bass fit. I'm just teasing you guys, man. It's, it's awesome uh, to do that. But in case you don't know, the boats go that fast because the tournament ends at 5 o'clock. And you got to be at the dock at 5 o'clock. If your boat will go really fast, you can fish really far away and get there on time. That's why it goes that fast. They don't run down the river going that fast. But anyway, so bass fishing, you know how you bass fish? Man, bass is an aggressive fish. So you throw throw the lure right in his face. And you go, with that lure. And the bass goes, who do you think you are? And he goes, what do you you want? And if he don't bite, you throw it back at him again. Yeah, dude, I was talking to you. And the bass goes, oh, yeah, bam, and he hits it and you catch him. A trout, if he sees you, he's going to hide. Because there's some fly fishermen. I don't know if there's any fly fishermen here. Y'all are the, you know, top level fishermen. I get that. Y'all think I'm silly with my little cane pole, but I still like that best. But... But, man, trout fishing, you got to get upstream so you don't scare them. And you got to get kind of hide so they don't see you. you got to make sure the sun doesn't cast a shadow. And you put the bait in the river, and you let it float right by where that trout's hiding. And he goes, hmm, that looked interesting. But I don't know. That may not be what I want. So you pull it out, and you throw it in the water, and let it float by him again. Oh, there's another one. It looks a little tasty, but I'm going to wait. you got to do that repeatedly, and finally the trout goes, let me go see what it is. And he goes out and gently grabs it, and boom, you got him. There are some people, man, they need you to beat them in the face <laughs> with the gospel. And there's some people you just got to say, wow, look at that. <laughs> wow, look at that. Wow, look at that. Wow, look at that. Don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. God makes different people different ways, and we need every kind of witness there is. Last week when I got to speak at Church United, I told them, thank God for this church. Because you reach people that we can't reach, and we'll reach people you can't reach. And in this church, there are people, you'll reach people I, I couldn't even talk to. And I'll reach people you can't even talk to. And God uses all of us. And we see that in this teamwork of Saul and Barnabas, or Barnabas and Saul, about to become Paul and Barnabas later on. But the main thing I really want you to get this morning is you can't call yourself Christian until you're a disciple. And I pray you'll be a disciple and that you'll disciple others. What would it look like if everybody in this church was a disciple of Jesus? And that we learned 
from Christ, from the Bible, from teachers that can help us. And we started applying who Jesus is in our life. And other people started saying, man, y'all are Christians. Well, I'll give you a few things maybe this week will help you on that journey. First of all, tell somebody about Jesus Christ. Pick up a track and give it to somebody this week. Write the church's name and address on it. The only, the, to do that, you, you really don't even have to talk, but the, the, the worst you got to do is say, here. We're taking evangelism course on, on Sunday nights. Uh, we're in our fifth week this, this week. And, and our, our assignment for the past three weeks is find a unique place to put a track. And we have a man in this church that went to the grocery store and opened the beer cooler in the grocery store and slid it in the crack of the box of the beer. So some poor soul hopefully will read it. Went and bought him a, you know, some PBR or, and took it home and opened it up and said, how did this get in here? <laughs> and got to read the gospel, hopefully. Well, you don't necessarily have to do that, but that's something you can do. A second thing you could do is be an encourager for a church member that's no longer involved or, or needs to be more involved. You know, some of y'all just sit there because you don't know what to do, and I get that. Statistically, they say about 30% of the church does 80% of the work, or 20% does 80%, something like that. And, and I, I would hope we, can, we, we will be able to do better in that as we go. And I think we already are probably better in that here, because I, I see a lot of you doing a lot of stuff. But do you want to be a sitter or a doer? You know, that, that one kid went to the guidance counselor and said, do you consider yourself a follower or a leader? He said, I consider myself a spectator. And so many of us are spectators to the work of God. We, we need to be involved. Lead, follow, or get out of the way is how they put that sometimes. And maybe you're one of the leaders. Maybe you're somebody that is involved. And you need to go encourage somebody that has been sidelined for a little while. For whatever reason. They may have had a personal tragedy, discouragement. I, I, I got a feeling Saul was pretty discouraged. Like twice he's tried to preach and both times they tried to kill him. And he goes home and he's licking his wounds for almost a decade. And then Barnabas shows up and says, hey, remember me? I'm the guy that made sure the church didn't kill you when you showed up. I need your help. Would you come help me? He doesn't say, you need to get involved. He says, I need you to help me. And he brought him in. So maybe God wants to use you to help someone get back in the fight. And then all around you, and by the way, everybody in this church is in a struggle. And somebody in your life, maybe you know them, is having a particular struggle right now. Why don't you be an encourager and a blessing and a help to them? You know, this prophet said the church is going to be in trouble. There's a famine coming. And the church in Antioch said, well, let's make sure we help take care of that. And they start taking a collection then. We ought to be living our life such a way that we have an excess so that we have something to give when somebody has a need. I mean that more than just money. We ought to be living in the overflow of our life. We ought to be in... in Communion with God so much that as we worship Jesus Christ daily, as we're in the word and prayer and doing all things God calls us to do, that the, Jesus didn't say, I'll give you water when you're thirsty like I'm drinking out of that bottle. He said, out of your innermost beings will gush a river of living water. Well, when's the last time you gushed off into somebody else's life? That God, you were so full of the Holy Spirit that his, he, he just flowed out of you into other people's lives. There's somebody out there that needs you this week. 
to bring the Holy Spirit in their life and say, let me help you in the name of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, he sent me to be a help to you, an encouragement to you. And you ought to do that, not out of a weakness, not out of I don't have much left, but let me help you, but out of an overflow of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's what Barnabas and Saul are doing here. Man, they are teaching these people for a year out of that overflow of what God's doing in their life, I'm sure. And they, so much so, the reason I know is at the end of the year when they take up an offering, they say, you're the guys that need to take that because, man, you guys are guys that help other people. And so I pray that that would be true in your life as well.